Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, did you stay up to the end of the 18-inning Cubs-Yankees game last night? I did not. <laughs> I did not either. I guess this is one case where being on the East Coast works against <laughs> us. Everybody's like, oh, East Coast bias. Uh, I woke up this morning, and I, I was so confused at why people were asking me about Kyle Schwarber's catch probability in the 12th inning because I went to I fell asleep in the ninth inning uh, when the Yankees looked like that was going to be an easy out to the game. Um so not so much. I guess the lesson here is never turn off a baseball game, no matter how over you think it is. We got a cool show today, I think, because we're going to talk about some guys we haven't talked about a lot. So this is not going to be a Seth Lugo show. It's not going to be a Byron Buxton show. Uh, but we're going to talk about Yonder Alonso, who I think we absolutely are forced to talk about right now, uh, and what it means to have an ideal launch angle. We're going to talk about Francisco Rodriguez. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in the Cubs outfield as far as their defense goes. And we're going to in- induct a new name into the StatCast Hall of Fame. And it's a name I'm reasonably sure we've never once mentioned in the history of this show. Uh, so we're going to get to that. So that's going to be pretty exciting. First, we got to talk about Yonder Alonso, right? Are you excited about Yonder Alonso? I am. So last week, um, Michael Clare, uh, who writes for Cut 4 mainly, but sometimes occasionally pitches analysis pieces that we run on the site, was like, hey, like, you know, Ryan Zimmerman's getting all this attention for raising his launch angle, but like, I want to do a piece about Yonder Alonso. This was literally a week ago. And I looked, and I was like, oh, wow, like, Gunnar Alonso has five homers, which is a lot for him in a month. And, like, this is interesting. Sure, do the piece. He wrote the piece. Since then, Yonder Alonso has hit four more homers and was just named uh, American League Player of the Week. So a little background on Yonder Alonso. Uh, he was drafted by the Reds. And he was sent to San Diego, I think, in the uh, the same deal that Matt Latos and Yasmani Grandal were involved in. In the first uh, 2,343 plate appearances of his career, nearly 2,400 plate appearances, he hit 39 home runs. It's about 60 plate appearances for every home run. This year, he's come to the plate 101 times, and he's already got nine homers. That's 11 plate appearances for every home run. That is a massive difference, and he's kind of been one of these guys. He's like a first baseman. You can get on base a little bit. Now he's with the A's. Never really hit for any power, and all of a sudden, here's the power. And, you know, we talk a lot about guys who say, I want to elevate. I want to hit the ball off the ground. Here is him talking to Enar Saris, our friend from Fangraphs, uh, in spring training. He's like, I did some mechanical things, but also the intent was important. I'm trying to punish it more, trying to get it in the air. Well, that's exactly what he's done. It's cool. Like, we're seeing more and more guys talk about this. And, um, you know, we talked about the home run surge. I don't think that's the entire reason for the home run surge, but I'm more convinced than ever that some of these guys trying to do it is absolutely part of this. Yeah, he's basically been doing, he's kind of having the the Ryan Zimmerman kind of uh, explosion with a lot less hype. Although now, after winning Player of the Week, he'll probably get a little more attention. And of course, being talked about. I mean, on ob- the show. obviously, but he he is just kind of like the perfect ideal of 2017 baseball now. Because not only did he decide I'm going to try to elevate, I'm going to try to hit home runs, but he was always kind of known for being a, a strong, high contact kind of hitter. And what comes along with trying to elevate and hit home runs? Strikeouts. So his strikeout percentage is up from 14% to 22%. I'm not saying that's a bad thing for him. I'm sure he's much happier hitting home runs and striking out a little more. But, I, I mean, that's kind of the trend we're seeing all across baseball. Right? Yeah, to me, a guy like Alonzo is is fascinating. He, he kind of, you know, goes in line. And I'm not – first of all, I'm not saying this is necessarily going to be sustainable. I'm not saying he's going to hit 50 home runs. But it is fascinating to see these players make these huge transition transitions at the big league level. And it has to be so encouraging if you're kind of like a triple-A, a, a 4A kind of guy who's – hasn't really like been able to break through maybe you think your time has passed to see guys who looked like they were maybe going to wash out your yonder alonzo's your justin turner's your your eric thames to see these guys reinvent themselves in their mid to late 20s and become impact players it also has to from a club perspective makes you much more open-minded about what kind of players 
you should write off or, or not. Yeah, I wonder when we're going to get to the tipping point of this. I don't think we're there yet. Like, you feel like you're going to see more and more guys trying this. Uh, but I think what we're also learning is it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, right? We, we've talked a lot about guys who are trying to elevate, you know, like you said, Turner and Murphy and J.D. Martinez and Josh Donaldson. But certainly this does not apply equally to everybody. Billy Hamilton should not be trying to hit the ball in the air. He just he doesn't have the upper body strength. He's got elite speed. That's not his game. So certainly this is not something where we're saying – Everybody should do that. And so I've been thinking about that a lot and, and talking to Tom Tango, uh, our colleague, about that a lot. And something we've been working on, and, and hopefully we'll write something about this soon, is kind of getting the idea of where is your ideal launch angle, right? And so the way we sort of define this is what is the, the kind of 50% window, kind of vertically, where your maximum production is? So, we, you know, looking at weighted on base average. So to give you a couple examples of what I mean, uh, Chris Bryant last year was a guy who talked about kind of knowing what his launch angle should be. So his ideal launch angle, the median of that, uh, is 23 degrees, right? And his actual was 21 degrees. And what that means is basically, uh, as far as where his velocity was, at what angles he hit it, he did a really good job of getting very close to the perfect angle for him. And we saw that. He was a fantastic player. And I you, believe he was MVP. You, yeah, you might have heard of him. He's, he's really good. Uh, and then you can kind of look at some other guys who didn't quite do that. Eric Hosmer is a guy we talk about a lot. Hits the ball really hard. Hits the ball right into the ground, and this is why you know he's never really been as productive as I think people would like him to be. Last year, his ideal launch angle, thirteen and a half degrees. His actual three and a half, right? So just based on where he hits the ball hard, where he gets his production, he'd be so much better if he could elevate it. And obviously, he didn't do that. But then there are some guys. It's like we said, it's not as simple as elevating and being better. D. Gordon, uh, a great example, is a very similar player to Billy Hamilton. His ideal launch angle is actually negative point three. His biggest success is when he hits the ball on the ground. That makes perfect sense to me. And his actual was was one point five. So he didn't hit for power, but you're not expecting him to hit for power. You know what? Based on his skill set, he is kind of in the right zone, and that that's what he can do. Yeah, because I mean, D. Gordon. You think about it. When he hits it in the air, best case scenario, it's probably a double that has to be well-placed. He's not going to, like, crush it in the alleys. Like, he's better off. He really – you his best-case scenario is basically hitting a lot of singles. Right. And so what's interesting to me about this idea of elevating is – so let's say let's say D. Gordon this year came into camp and said, I'm going to elevate, right? Most likely it would fail. He would not be successful. Uh, we saw that with Paul Orlando, a light-hitting Kansas City outfielder who uh, I think got sent down to the minor leagues a couple weeks ago because he was elevating and just wasn't doing anything because he just can't hit the ball that hard. So – you can kind of look at Alonzo through this window, I think, because it's one thing to say, okay, a guy should elevate, but you know, can he actually elevate and also maintain his velocity? Well, what Alonzo did, I think, was really interesting because he didn't just elevate, he changed his swing as well. So if you look at him last year, his ideal was uh, 10.7 degrees, his actual 10.3 degrees. His swing was built for low-line drives, uh, and he decided that's not the kind of hitter he wanted to be. As he told, you know, I'm going to try to elevate. So this year, uh, his launch angle is up from 10.3 to 22. That's more than double. And if his ideal was still 10.7, that wouldn't be great. That would be a lot of weak flyouts. His ideal is now up to 24. So he's really changed his swing. So he's actually kept his ideal launch angle and his actual pretty close. He's just made both of those at a more productive angle. That's, right? Does that make sense? Does, I, this is kind of a complicated concept. It definitely is. But it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, Alonzo's fascinating. He's like this, he's this new, you know, it's 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 all the rage, man. <laughs> Elevate, no slug on the ground. So, as li- listeners of this show know, yeah, I think the challenge is going to be explaining all that uh, in a tweet or in an image that can be put on Twitter. It's going to be one of the. It's going to be one of those little things that you kind of write on an Apple, no- like a little iPhone notepad, and then you like cut and paste, like you see sometimes people do when they when they want to make some sort of public statement. Oh yeah, I've never done that, but 
we'll, we'll try to Photoshop something together. So anyway, I, I think that's really cool. And uh, I think kind of the next step will be looking at some of these other guys and, and see not only who raised their launch angle, but who should have raised their launch angle and who actually brought their velocity with him. Because that's really the trick. You can hit it as high as you want. But if your velocity is on the ground, then you didn't really do anything to help yourself. And that's the end goal. Uh, before we move on to Francisco Rodriguez, so I'm kind of really interested in talking about Francisco Rodriguez. A reminder that you should listen to the Cut 4 podcast. That's the Cut Forecast, which is the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut 4 section, as uh, Matt just talked about Michael Clare. And it focuses on the lighter side of baseball. It'll make you laugh. You might even learn something about baseball, dogs, or ballpark food. Last week's episode featured a hypothetical baseball high fashion crossover proposal called the Met Gala. And uh, if that sounds like something you're into, do search Cut Forecast, C-U-T, number four, C-A-S-T in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do click subscribe. And uh, now back to our show, Francisco Rodriguez, K-Rod, uh, rough weekend against uh, Yonder Alonso in the Oakland A's? For sure. Uh, a couple blown saves and there's talk of uh, him maybe losing his job. As two, closing. two. Uh, well, the rumor <laughs> is... Uh, Justin Wilson, obviously listeners of this show know from last week's episode that I am high on Justin Wilson. Although, amazingly, Justin Wilson, as of last week, had not allowed a hit on his forcing fastball this year. Uh, hitters were 0 for 22 as of our last show. They are now 1 for 28 because yesterday, Matt Joyce, of all people, Matt Joyce, he of the career 192-268-316 line against lefties, basically the prototypical platoon player somehow managed to rope a double uh off uh into the gap off uh, justin wilson you can't predict baseball baseball is just the best game uh but francisco rodriguez 849 era obviously not so great on saturday he faced five hitters uh gave up two hits and a walk two earned runs turned a 5-4 lead into a 6-5 loss the very next day he faced four hitters gave up two hits a walk uh one of those hits being a home run and three earned runs turned a 6-5 lead into an 8-6 loss. These are not his first difficult outings of the season, but obviously back-to-back on a weekend, you're going to notice these things. And as Matt mentioned, he very well may not be the closer by the time you actually hear the show. But I thought it was interesting. We, we kind of dug into him to try to figure out, you know, what was the issue with Francisco Rodriguez? I mean, we all remember him coming up in 2002 with that Angels team. He was, what, 20 years old, something like that? Yeah. Throwing, throwing heat, 97 miles an hour. So I thought this was kind of interesting. His velocity is down, but, like, it's not down by a crazy amount. It's down from 89.8 to 88.3. So... Does that matter? Yes. But it's not like a five-mile-an-hour difference here. It's also not like he's a guy who was relying on blowing it past you. Right. And so his velocity is down a little bit, but his four-seamer is actually not getting hit any harder. Uh, last year, the exit velocity was uh, 92 miles an hour. This year, it's 90.8. That, that's actually less. But it's kind of going back to – I don't think we've ever thought about this from the pitcher's point of view so much. It's getting elevated against him. Uh, last year, his four-seam fastball had a 46% ground ball rate. That's pretty good. This year, it's a 26% ground ball rate. That That's a launch angle that is basically doubled from 17 degrees to 33 degrees. And all four of his home runs this year have come on four-seamers last year, and none of his six were. Why am I talking about his four-seamer so much? For reasons I do not have an answer to, he's using it a whole lot more. Last year, he used it 28% of the time. This year, he's using it 44% of the time. He has basically ditched his sinking two-seam fastball entirely in favor of a four-seam fastball that has lower velocity. I don't know why he's doing this, but the numbers stand out to me. Well, it's not its not a huge question mark as to why he's getting lit up. Yeah, no, his, his kind of career path uh, is sort of has always reminded me a little bit of Trevor Hoffman's in terms of, like, he basically was a guy that threw hard when he was young and then basically evolved into this st- almost strictly fastball change. I mean, like, when, as you mentioned, when when... Uh, K-Rod came up with the O2 Angels in the postseason. He was like throwing 97 with this really hard breaking ball. And it was like, it was like, like a pitcher no one else had 
nowadays there's relievers like that are a dime a dozen, but in 2002 they were not. So he like really stood out as like this electric arm. And now that he's basically in the last few years just become a guy who gets by totally on guile with like a fastball and the changeup. And that combination doesn't seem to be working because I also believe, as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, his fastball's down, but his changeup velocity is the same. So like the different, he used to, you know, you rely on that difference between the two. So when that, the difference kind of tightens up a little bit, it's harder to, to succeed with that fastball changeup combo. So you're left with a guy with a four seam velocity that's down, less of a gap between that and the changeup, uh, using the, the sinker less. And so basically it's just four seam and changeup that aren't that different and are being elevated. And that's just an enormous recipe for disaster. We looked at um, his batted ball distance against all pitches last year, an average of 152 feet. This year, 225 feet. That's, uh, I mean, it's not even about is he going to be the closer anymore. Is it going to be on the roster for much longer? That's my question. Um, you know, you do wonder that, you know, the pitch usage thing is interesting. You wonder if it's a, a blip of a, you know, a few weeks of the season or if there's a reason he's doing it without knowing that. It's hard to really know that maybe if he sort of tries to, uh, you know, recalibrate his his pitch sequencing, maybe he can sort of recapture some of what he had. But at the same time, as you said before, the velo, with the velo down, with the, the gap shrinking between the changeup and the fastball, his window for de- deception is closing uh, fast. I'm going to go to a brief uh, Tiger's tangent here because we were talking about his ground ball rate and lack thereof. I noticed that the average ex- average launch angle uh, at Detroit is the highest of any ballpark this year. So uh, home teams and away teams, just per ballpark, not per Tigers. And you know, I thought that was interesting, and I looked that up. The Tigers pitchers have the <laughs> have the lowest ground ball rate in all of baseball this year. And, you know, Justin Verlander, high spin fastball, that makes sense. He doesn't get a lot of grounders. And here's Rodriguez, not getting any grounders at all. And then I looked at it from the other side. The Tigers hitters have the second lowest ground ball rate in all of baseball this year. So, yeah, it makes sense the launch angle would be that high. Well, it makes sense also the Tigers pitchers would want to get the ball in the air because that ballpark, which we've talked about a lot, it's conducive to... You know, there's there's some room. There's a lot of room for yeah. error on fly balls. I guess I guess yes and no because we have talked about that ballpark a lot. But then also their outfield defense, I don't think is that great. I mean, you got to have the guys who can catch these things down, and that's a wonderful segue into our next topic. Uh, we got to talk about the Cubs outfield defense. Now, everybody, you know, within within advanced stats or outside ad nauseum, last year talked about the Cubs defense, historically great. They were completely wonderful. It was a combination of elite pitching and elite defense, and that's why that team had really historic run prevention. This year, they've gotten off to a, a bit of a rough start, and part of that's because the Cubs starting pitching just kind of looks like they have had the after effects of last year a little bit. Um, but if you look at the Cubs and you, if you look at catch probability, last year they were tied for second in overall catch probability, uh, just a tick behind Tampa Bay. That makes perfect sense. Tampa Bay was very good. The Cubs were very good. This year, the Cubs, not only are they one of 13 teams without a single five-star catch, they are tied for the second lowest catch probability. So I'm going from second highest to second lowest, uh, just above the Milwaukee Brewers. So the Cubs are only catching 78% of their theoretically catch, uh, catchable balls. At the top, Seattle and San Diego tied at 90 percent so that's kind of a pretty big gap and i thought this was really interesting so that's our catch probability stat i also just looked at this from a completely different perspective i figured okay i'm just going to look at batting average on balls in play uh, on non-grounder hits that went at least 200 feet that's a pretty decent proxy for fly balls right at the bottom the cubs in milwaukee which is exactly what catch probability said so i like that the cubs are allowing a 421 batting average on balls in play on those non-grounder batted balls like at 200 feet uh, the MLB average is 343. That's an enormous gap, and I don't think that there's a, much of a question that the Cubs' personnel has changed, right? I mean, there are a lot of moving parts in that outfield. Hayward's really the only one who's kind of consistent from year to year. And the biggest change is also, I mean, last year, Kyle Schwarber got hurt the first week of the season, 
playing left field, did not play another inning in the regular season. And this year he's basically playing left field every day. And even before his knee injury, there was questions about how effective he would be as a left fielder. And now you have to consider that like, The numbers are suggesting that he is a pretty big liability. I will give him credit. He made a really nice catch last night in the 12th inning, I want to say. He he ran over and kind of did a little flip over the short wall, and he made the catch. So that was really nice. And I I can't even, like, sit here and say, well, you know, he's been a disappointment out there because I don't think anyone's expectations were that he was going to be. He's there to hit. I mean, he's basically a DH, or he should be a first baseman. I know he catches a little bit. Um, But, yeah, he's been a little below average out there. And then it's interesting when you look at the rest of the team, you know, left field this year, Schwarber, Jay and Zobrist and I think Zobrist has has not looked that great out there either or, or even at the plate I and mean, he kind of looks every bit of his age this year and then in center field Alamora kind of has this wonderful defensive reputation and I've seen him make some great plays but the numbers just really haven't been there for him right it, it doesn't look like he's actually been playing that well this no year. I mean by our you know five-star catch system that you know via catch probability he has nothing better than a three three-star plays and zero four-star plays zero five-star plays and he's one for five on three-star plays. Right, and, and let's caveat here. I know he made that one uh, home run robbery of, I want to say, Matt Adams, and we don't account for that, so credit due to him on that. But, yeah, overall, this has been a, a pretty below-average outfield defense, which is, you know, I, I didn't really ex- expect them to maintain what they had last year because I thought Dexter Fowler played pretty well, and losing him was going to be a step back, and adding Schwarber was going to be a step back. But I'm a little shocked at how far they've fallen. Yeah, and then you, we also, uh, we, I mean, Mike, also ran the year-to-year uh change in catch probability uh to see which teams have improved the most and which teams have uh taken the biggest step backs and the cubs are down eight percentage points from last year last year they were converting 86 percent of their theoretical catchable fly balls which ranked second second in baseball now that their their gap of eight percentage points is the biggest drop off in the majors with the twins uh taking the biggest leap forward which makes sense having added Buxton and Kepler to the regular outfield rotation. And we talked about that was, I think that was one we hit on, right? Because we previewed the twins as saying they're going to be a much better outfield because they're not going to have snow out there and they're not going to have our out there because Kepler's really good and Buxton's really good. I know Buxton hasn't really hit, but his defense is fantastic. Uh, and then what's interesting is the Mariners are, are tied for second, the biggest step forward, because the Mariners made a big deal this winter of signing all these guys who they thought would be an improvement in the outfield. I'm kind of surprised, maybe this is what I might need to dig into a little further, that the Marlins have taken a big step up because it's basically the same three guys. It's Stanton and Yelich and Ozuna, except they swapped Ozuna and Yelich. So I'd be interested to see if that actually made a difference or not. I, get on that. Yeah, I mean, get on that. That's right. Uh, but anyway, back to the Cubs. Yeah, as you said, 8%. It's a big step back. And it, as something you noticed is the Cubs center fielders are playing a lot shallower this year. Last year, we made a big deal of the fact that Dexter Fowler took a bunch of, uh, of steps backwards. The Cubs uh, were playing 319. That's uh, feet from home plate, which was the 10th deepest of 30 clubs. This year, that's down to 313, which is the 22nd deepest. I don't know that we can say six feet is a huge difference, but it's just it is something that's different in addition to the personnel. Well, well I think that's also because that was part of the conversation last year with the Cubs when we were saying, "Oh, all-time great defense." Well, is it all-time great defense? Is it all-time great positioning? Is it a combination of all of these things? And maybe some changes in positioning, and maybe some of these changes, you know, like there could be particularly with outfield positioning, there could be a big cascading effect if they're changing their positioning to try and compensate for Schwarber. That can open up some. Um, some gaps and some other some other weaknesses uh, within with, with, within the overall defense. Yeah, and I do think part of it is you have to go back and look at the pitching staff. Because I remember last year the Cubs made all the catches, but 
they didn't rate particularly highly in five-star catches. It's not like they were making these ridiculous catches all the time. The pitching staff was giving up a lot of soft contact and at the right angles. I mean, this is the Kyle Hendricks story, right? And this year, that kind of hasn't been there. I, I do think they've made it a little bit harder on their outfield. I do think the outfield is not as athletic as it was last year, and the positioning is different. There's just a lot happening in Chicago, and it's interesting. They're not steamrolling everybody, which I find interesting. The, I mean, the the one sort of piece of good news you could say for Cubs fans, and we talked about this a little bit last week, is that when you look at when we look at our expected batting outcomes, expected WOBA, expected batting average, uh, Arietta and Lester are two of the guys with the biggest gaps, which suggests that their their profiles of like basically the types of batted balls they're allowing relative to the when you factor in their strikeout and walk rates are about as good as you would expect and that they sh- their, their overall run prevention should be better. But if their defense is letting them down, well, there's not much they can really do about that. Yeah, it's a combination of a couple of things. And with Brett Anderson kind of falling apart, they're going to need a starter later in the season. And I very much look forward to seeing Marco Estrada wearing Chicago Cup blue and red. <laughs> I mean, you know, Hendricks, you know, he's in, against, he pitched against the Yankees on Friday. It seemed like he was in and out of trouble. The whole, I mean, he, his overall line ended up being fine, but he didn't get out of the sixth. He was in and out of trouble seemingly every inning he's pitching in Colorado I think tomorrow or Wednesday which is I can't wait to which see his <laughs> pro like but the way it's still the way he's throwing right now that is a not a uh, favorable matchup for I, the Cubs. I just realized that we might get to see Kyle Schwarber in that enormous outfield I don't know if he's going to play that much or not but that's going to be fascinating to watch that is a, the Rockies are shockingly a really interesting team this year no question no question um, we have to uh, finish off here by inducting a new play into our StatCast Hall of Fame. We're going to try to do one of these each week. Uh, previously, we put in Aaron Judge hitting the hardest hit ball of the StatCast era. Think, hardest hit home run. Of oh, excuse me. It's going to be hardest hit home run of the StatCast era. Uh, and then pre- before that, this year, we had Adam Rosales taking the fastest non-inside-the-park home run trot. So uh, each week, we're going to try to find a really interesting play. And I do believe this is the first time we've ever talked about Marwin Gonzalez on this show. And uh, the more I dug into Marwin Gonzalez, the more fascinating I found him. We all talk about Houston kind of, you know, going through the three years of 100 losses each season. Things were really dark there. And they've rebounded. They've become a very good team. He and I think maybe Jose Altuve are like the only two guys who were there before that. I mean, Gonzalez came up in 2012, and he has shockingly been around for all these years. There are two Marvin Gonzalez things that have always interested me. One of which was, I think this was probably 2013, I want to say, when the when the Astros were about at their worst. And when you Darvish was kind of at his peak when he first came over here. And the Astros would play the Rangers like three times. Darvish would get like three starts a year against the Astros. And it always felt like when Darvish was facing those Astros lineups, like it was no hitter alert anytime. And he actually took a perfect game into the ninth against the Astros. And it was Marwin Gonzalez (laughs) that broke it up. Might have been with two outs. I'm not sure with a line drive right back to the box. I I remember that. And I also have a pretty good guess as to what your second Marwin Gonzalez (laughs) fact is going to be. This was actually one of my favorite facts from last year was that Marwin Gonzalez, the first 25 home runs of his career. There it is. (laughs) Were all solo home runs, which I'm 95% sure we confirmed was a record to start a career uh, for for solo home runs to start a career. And he's being inducted into our Hall of Fame for the exact opposite of a solo home run. Uh, Last week, I, I don't remember who the pitcher was, but I think it was against the Rangers. He had a grand slam, right? And so grand slams are great. There's no argument about that. But we have a stat that we've been calling hit probability. And what that is is it takes the exit velocity and the launch angle of a batted ball and by combining those two things, it looks at uh, it looks at those two things and it says, how likely is this ball to be a hit across the StatCast era? Marvin Gonzalez hit a grand slam 
that had a 4% hit probability. Now, that is not a home run probability. That is a hit probability. And I know this is an audio-only podcast, and you cannot see the spray chart I have, although I've tweeted it out. We looked at all of these balls that had very similar characteristics, 94 miles an hour off the bat, 41-degree launch angle. And it's really interesting because it's essentially a straight line across the outfield where if you hit it from anywhere, you know, from center field towards the corners, it's a lazy fly ball. It's probably the easiest fly ball. But if you hit it right down the line and there's not as much distance you have to travel there, that can be a home run. This ball has been a home run only three times in StatCast history. One was by Brian Dozier right down the left field line. Not a shock. One was by Marwin Gonzalez right down the right field line. And the other one by Colby Rasmus, also in Houston, right down the right foot line. Ballpark effects are amazing. And what was also amazing about this play was the the moment. It happened in the bottom of the eighth inning. The Astros were trailing 7-3. to three. So not only did this, this – it had a 4% hit probability. It also changed the win expectancy, like like swung it like 80 percentage points. It was like the the the, 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 the Rangers were 90% to win before the pitch, and they were like – 90% to lose after the pitch. It's and it's one of those things where it's I don't I wish I could remember who the pitcher was, but I honestly don't. I'm sure his line got totally ruined by this. And you know, he walks off the field, he gave up a grand slam, he's totally defeated. And you know, I'm sure that's all he he's going to care about, but you could also say, look, that ball isn't out 96% of the time. I mean, in one sense he did his job, and in the other sense I can't say he did his job because he gave up a grand slam home run. Uh, it's just one of those very baseball things it, that I find fascinating. It's kind of the randomness that uh, that makes that makes the game great. You know, you, we we work in probabilities and things that, you know, you try and work towards things that are going to come out in your favor and this should have come out in the Rangers' yeah. favor, but things are not going in the Rangers' favor this year and they're very much going in the in the Astros' favor. The Astros that that in that game, it was their fourth win this year when they had trailed by at least five runs they hadn't had a win where they trailed by at least five runs since 2015 i picked the astros to be uh my american league champions this year and when i did so i can't tell you how many tweets i got from people saying yeah but they can't beat the rangers <laughs> this is this is karma evening out i guess so um as we said that's a four percent hit probability that is tied for the lowest hit probability on a grand slam in the Statcast era yes someone else did this which i don't even think we realized at the time uh mookie betts did this last year against jabba chamberlain and the cleveland indians he uh, put one over the green monster, only hit a ball 89 miles an hour, got it over the green monster, 89 miles an hour, 35 degrees. That's also an out 96% of the time. I mean, anywhere else that does not have the left field that Boston does, that's a lazy fly ball you never, ever think about again. There it was a grand slam. Yeah. Ballpark effects. 89 <laughs> miles an hour is basically the lowest end where you can hit a home run. I think the lowest we've seen in the Stackhouse era is a Tulowitzki home run at like 87 point something uh yeah i think that's right off of chris sale i want to say it was 87.1 or something like that uh, marwin gonzalez by the way he is off to a tremendous start he had 13 home runs and 518 plate appearances last year he's already got nine in his first 86 so i thought to myself oh that's interesting maybe he's a guy who's elevating but he's really weird he's a man of total extremes because he is elevating right he's his fly ball percentage over the last two years was 33 percent and then it was 32 percent and now this year it's 41 percent you're like okay cool he's elevating but hold on a second. His ground ball rate was 44% in 2015, 47% last year, and now it's 50%. He's doing both of those things. And how is he doing that? Because his line drive rate has completely disappeared. It went from 20, 22%, 20% to 8%. So he's very much an all-or-nothing player right now, which I, I find really interesting. Well, the, the home run that he hit um, sort of reminded me of the kind of home runs that uh, Curtis Granderson used to hit when he went over to the Yankees and started hitting like 40 home runs a year because basically he just tried to – all he tried to do was hit like high fly balls to right field and – you know, 
a lot of them just ended up kind of traveling over that short fence in right field. And that was like exactly the kind of home run that uh, Gonzalez hit in this, uh, this 4%. Uh, so it, it, in, in Houston, people always focus on the Crawford boxes, but down the right field line, it's also pretty short. It's a weird ballpark because down left field and right field, is pretty easy home runs. It's, it's to dead center. That's really deep. Of course, now it's not as deep as it used to be with Tal's Hill gone, but it's still, uh, when you pull the ball in Houston, Home runs will happen with uh, with relative ease. I, I have never been to Houston or that ballpark, but um, I hope they I hope they get to the the uh, the pennant. I really want to go there. I want to see what that looks like. Our final Marwin Gonzalez fact, by the way, I had no idea of, of his backstory. I just figured he was like an international free agent or whatever. No, he was actually signed by the Cubs in 2005. He was uh, selected by the Red Sox in the 2011 Rule 5 draft and immediately sent to the Astros for the immortal Marco Duarte, who I can honestly say I've never heard of, and I don't think he made it anywhere. And Gonzalez spent the entire 2012 season as a Rule 5 guy. He's been kicking around as a backup for years, and now all of a sudden he's got power. Uh, baseball is so weird right now with home runs, but I love it, and uh, it's super fun to talk about a 4% hit probability grand slam. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. This is Matt Myers. Thank you for listening.